All right, well, guys, this morning we are continuing in our study through the book of Colossians. You can go ahead and turn there with me. We spent three weeks in the first chapter of Colossians, and this week we're going to be diving into chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to go ahead and read our passage for this morning. We're going to be reading Colossians 2, 1 through 7, and then we'll uh, dive in and, and think about it a little bit. Paul writes this to the church in Colossae, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And we'll stop right there for this morning. Uh, in the coming verses, verses 8 through 23, just about, Paul is going to be talking about various, he, he makes reference here to people who he fears might delude them with plausible arguments. And he's going to spend some time, a fair amount of time, describing what some of those efforts to delude people were with some specificity. But here in verses 1 through 7, his focus is a little bit different, and so we're going to tackle that other thought next week. The Colossian church to whom Paul wrote this letter that we've been studying now for several weeks would have been comprised almost entirely of new believers. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but the church that Paul is writing to would have been pretty much completely made up of people who were brand new to Jesus. Most of them were likely Gentile converts who were probably not even very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures of Judaism. And of course, Christianity emerged out of Judaism to such a degree that early on it was looked upon as a sect or an offshoot of Judaism rather than another religion as it is generally thought of today. Jesus, of course, was the fulfillment of all the messianic promises that were in the Old Testament scriptures He's the embodiment of the truth that they contain, and he lived out their demands perfectly in his body of flesh. And Christianity, properly understood, is not really a departure from what we find in the Old Testament that we share with Judaism, but rather it represents a glorious new phase in redemptive history that perfectly fulfills rather than replaces, well, all that came before. And that continuity was this great springboard for explaining who Jesus was as the church first emerged in the first century Roman world. Anyone who possessed the knowledge of the law and the prophets would have been familiar with the idea of a coming Messiah. And so a lot of early evangelistic efforts of Paul and others were a fairly simple, straightforward argument that Jesus was the person that they had been looking for. 
And I think this is why Paul generally sought out synagogues when trying to win converts in a new city. In Acts, we'll see this pattern over and over again where Paul will go to a new place, he'll seek out the synagogue, and he'll argue for Jesus there. Because he already had some beginning with them. There was a foundation in God's word that he could build upon. However, and this is very important for us to see in our study of Colossians, for the most part, the Colossians were probably not steeped in that religious tradition, and they did not have an awareness or a start like a beginning of an understanding of what God had done up to that point. They were new to the conversation, and they were new to church. And this is not so different, I think, from the mix that we have here at State Road this morning. We have some folks here who have not yet made a decision for Jesus. They're thinking about it, and we're glad that you're here. Some of you, like the Colossians, are new believers, and you're new to all, all of this. Other Christians seem to know the names of the different books of the Bible, and they drop names like Ruth and David and Timothy, like everybody should know what these names mean, but you don't yet. <laughs> That's here in this room, too. Others have only recently put their trust in Jesus for salvation, but they have some foundation in the faith. Maybe they were brought up in a home where that was taught. But maybe just recently they've kind of put it all together and they suddenly have awakened to this reality of how excellent and needed Jesus is. And so they've become a follower of his personally. And then, of course, there are saints who have been walking with Jesus for decades since before I was born, in and out of season, and we're all here in this room together this morning. Mysteriously, even though some have been walking in the narrow way for many more years than others, we all, nobody's any closer to getting home. <laughs> we're all here together on this same stretch of road, and that's by God's design. He loves to bring us all together to benefit from one another. We're all here. We're all needed. And there's something in this passage for all of us, whether we've been following Jesus for 60 seconds or 60 years. Now, the chapter breaks and verse numbers that we find in our Bibles today are not inspired by God. Those were invented by a Frenchman in the Middle Ages. They were added many hundreds of years after the words in our Bibles were originally written. They were added to make referencing the Bible easier. However, just like a bison doesn't care one bit as it's roaming across the prairie that it has moved on from Montana to North Dakota, the flow of what God is saying is not always a respecter of those chapter breaks. God's logic and reasoning just flows across an unbroken plane of what he's been unfolding and saying up to that point. And then right there in the middle of it, we human beings have plunked down a chapter two. <laughs> it's like a fence across the prairie that doesn't belong there, probably. Now, our text for this morning begins with Paul stating that he wants the Colossians to know how great a struggle he has for them. And this thought at the beginning of chapter 2 flows directly out of the last lines of chapter 1, which read this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. 
And that chapter 2 break really messes the flow of what Paul is saying there. He's talking about his struggle, what he's toiling for. And he says, I want you to know what a struggle I have for you. And I think this idea of struggle was certainly meant by Paul to communicate the heartfelt burden that he had for these people. I mean, he loves them. And he's not uncaring and distant. He's really trying to communicate. Sometimes we just bump up against the limits of human language and trying to convey our hearts. But Paul is just saying, I want you to know how to struggle I have for you. I love you. I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. I think it probably implies that he fought for them in prayer, even at a great distance. He is speaking to God about them. But mostly what I take it to mean is precisely what Paul says he means by it, what he's struggling for. And that is there at the tail end of chapter 1 that he's proclaiming Christ. He's warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that they could be presented as mature in Christ. Paul is fighting hammer and tongs to help these people grow into sturdy followers of Jesus as best he can from where he's at. Uh, Colossians and, and its companion letter Philemon, both were probably delivered at the same time, are different from some of his other letters, but similar to some other letters. And the difference is this, in Galatians, and I've explained this on previous Sundays, Galatians He is arguing for the gospel. False ideas had flourished in the midst of the Galatian church and were threatening to take them away from the gospel hope that Paul had first imparted to them. And so he shows up in Galatians unloading with both barrels, making arguments for the gospel chapter after chapter after chapter. In Colossians, his argument is not for the gospel but that they would live in light of the gospel a certain way. And so here what he's struggling for is that they would be brought to maturity, not that they would be brought back. And that's really his focus in the book of Colossians. In the language of Colossians 2.6, the Colossian Christians had received Christ, but they were just learning to walk in him. I don't mean to insult anybody or anything like that, but um, there is a sense in which these Colossians are baby Christians. They're full-grown, mature adults who pay bills and run businesses and stuff, but in this business of walking in Christ, they're pretty new to it. And I've had six kids, and it's a great joy to see them begin to walk. But when infants are first learning to walk, there's a lot of stumbling and falling down. Last night, we have company at our house, and we're all sitting around, and my little boy Oliver, he just turned two, he got up and started running across. Nothing tripped him. Nothing got in the way. Down he went. I mean, it sounded like a trip to the hospital kind of fall, but he was fine. But Paul is writing to these Christians who have received Jesus, but they are just learning to walk in him. And there's some stumbling going on. In verse 7, they're described as being rooted in Christ, but they had not yet been built up into maturity. And judging from what he says in verse 4 and also verses 8 through 23, this represented a vulnerable time for these new believers in Jesus. They were sincere in their faith, but their lack of depth and maturity made them vulnerable to false teachers and their 
quote, plausible arguments, end quote, which would have steered them away from the hope of the gospel and not toward it. Now, we'll get to that again next week, and I'm looking forward to that. But here, Paul is going to write about what he hopes will come from all his struggling on behalf of the Colossian church. In verse 2, he articulates his hopes for three things that would flourish among the Colossian believers. And the first is this, that their hearts may be encouraged. Second, that they would be knit together in love. And third, that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Let's spend just a little time with each of these three thoughts. The first is that they would be encouraged. Uh, Living for Jesus in the midst of a fallen world means that all of our movement towards Christ and Christ-likeness is going to be opposed. We talk about this a lot. There is a strong, powerful current that's running contrary to the direction that God would have us go in Christ. There's a strong downward pull to these days. The prevailing current of the culture and even the old man that lives within us that we're trying to put off, our sin nature, is constantly pulling away at our hearts and minds. It constantly threatens to pull us backward and away from where we want to go. And Paul knows that the moment that the church was established in, among the Colossians, those forces started trying to erode the faith of these new Christians. And so from a great distance, Paul in Rome and them in modern what is today Turkey, he struggles in prayer and teaching that they would be encouraged to continue striving against that ruinous current and to cling to Christ and not give up their their confidence in Him and His promises. We encourage one another in Christ by reminding each other about the promises of God that are especially suited to each other's needs. Um, You might remember back in 2019, we studied our way through the life of David. And there's a, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16, we're told there that David's best friend, Jonathan, came to him to strengthen his hand in God. And that language, strengthen his hand in God, is Old Testament biblical language for encourage him, support him, encourage him. And the way that Jonathan encouraged David was to, first of all, he didn't just come to encourage him generally, he came to encourage him in God. And the way he did that was by reminding David of some promises that God had made to him. That's what he did. The way he strengthened David's hand in God was to come to him and say, look upon these present difficult circumstances in light of the promises God has made to you. If you go back and read that in 1 Samuel 23, that is exactly what Jonathan does. And it's exactly what happens in small groups throughout State Road. When we sit down together and we get to know each other, there's a place where we know one another and where we ourselves are known and we open up to the reality of the messiness of our lives. And then a brother or a sister is able to take God's promises and apply them to that messy reality of what we're going through and helps us look upon our present circumstances in light of what God has promised to us. This is a powerfully encouraging thing. This is what Paul wants to do for the Colossians. 
So we encourage one another in Christ by reminding each other about the promises of God that he's made to us. And so again, we, this is an exercise that's worth doing. What might you say to a Christian friend who is discouraged in the midst of an unrewarding ministry? Well, you could point them to 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Somebody might be just, I just see nothing coming of it. And then somebody encourages them with that verse, your labor's not in vain. What might you say to someone to encourage them in Christ who is dying of a terminal illness? They especially need to view what's going on in light of a promised future. Well, of course, we can talk to them about pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore, talk to them of a coming day when they will put off the perishable and be clothed in the imperishable, tell them the good news that you know someone who went into the grave and came back out again. And that all those who put their trust in him for salvation will likewise be resurrected into a new order. Psalm 23 makes it plain that he who provided for us in life will provide for us even when we come to the end of it and beyond. What about someone who's been wronged, cheated, stolen from? We'll remind them that we have a better and a lasting possession in Christ. And there's a treasure laid up where rust, moth, and thief can't, can't destroy or plunder. 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. What about someone who is lonely? Well, you can remind them that Jesus said that he'd be with us to the end of the age and that he's given us the church as traveling companions as we all make our way home to God. We bring God our wrecked bodies and he promises that we will be given new ones and that even this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. We bring him those who have wronged us, and he reminds us that there's a coming day of justice and that vengeance belongs to him. We bring him our anxiety, and he promises peace that passes all understanding. What might you say to a Christian friend who's feeling tempted away into sin? Well, they need to view their present wandering in light of a promised future when God says, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We bring to him our lack of money, and he reminds us of his words in Matthew 6, that if God feeds the birds and clothes the flowers, he will, not, will he not do the same for his own children? Again and again and again and again. And the problem is, when I'm in the midst of some bad spot, I don't have the wisdom necessarily in myself to speak these words to myself. <laughs> I need you. I need you. And that's why every so, well, not why, there's many reasons why, but that's one of the very important reasons why God, throughout his word, encourages us to be a one another together people in this endeavor. You will need to be encouraged because right now there are forces tempting to pull you away from, from the good way. And you need a Christian to come and speak these things to encourage you to hang on, to cling to those promises. 
Scripture says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive or who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, hang on. Don't let go. I think one of the most important scripture passages on encouragement for me personally is found in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, what's interesting is if you read that passage, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, in its broader context, that those verses sit squarely in the midst of a larger block of Scripture, which is positively dripping with concern that some folks will cease striving and thereby pull, be pulled backwards away from Christ. Uh, the verses that surround that text call believers to hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering, warn believers not to be enticed away from their hope by the allure of sin, warn them not to let go of their hope because of suffering that they experience, the author uses language like hold fast, draw near, don't throw away your confidence, you have need of endurance. And the author closes that section by warning that those who shrink back because of the, these things will be swept away to eternal destruction. And probably the reason it says all the more as you see the day drawing near is because the end of days in this age are going to be time of difficulty and evil and temptation. When we need each other more than ever, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, because wickedness is multiplied, most men's love will grow cold. So if meeting together is meant to encourage each other and stir us up to love, then it's obvious why we must do this all the more as we see the day, the day of Christ's appearing, drawing near. The threat against our faith and our love will increase as that day draws closer. And so the preciousness of close Christian relationships becomes obvious when we recognize that Paul, what Paul says in Ephesians 5.16, that the days are evil. The preciousness of comforting, encouraging believers in our lives is understood most when we feel that cold pressing in. Uh, it's a story I've told you folks before. Now, forgive me for like every Sunday I repeat myself, I feel like, but... Um, when I lived in Florida, there was a very famous story there about a couple. They were both really good swimmers. He was a professional swimmer, but they went swimming off the coast of Florida. She dove in and started swimming. When she came up, the boat was a lot further from where she thought they had been. As she was caught in a current that was pulling her away from the boat, she started calling to her husband, who dove in after her, thinking she wants me to come to her. She wanted her to bring the boat caught up to her, she said, look, the current is taking the boat away, and now we're both out of the boat. And he said, well, I'm just going to swim, 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 swim. You just tread water as long as you can. Guys, he swam for some un amazing amount of time, but he did catch that boat. He caught that boat and raised the alarm, and they went and they found his wife. I think his wife had been in the water for multiple days at that point, amazingly. But here's the thing I want us to see as we're thinking about this idea of encouragement. 
The Christian life is a life of striving against a current that is very real. The, the proof that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not that we are perfect, guys. I mean, we beat this drum every week. Of course not. It's not that you're morally perfect or sinless or any such crazy idea as that, but it is that you are striving. You are kicking against that current. You're pursuing God. And I think one of the very important ways that we strive is by putting ourselves in a position where other believers can speak these encouraging truths into our lives. Pride is a blinding thing, and I have this big Josh Tate-sized blind spot that I don't see myself correctly all the time, and I need other believers around me where when I'm despairing and I'm threatening to let go and stop kicking, where somebody else will encourage me with a timely word. We all need that. And so I encourage you to put yourself in a position. We're going to be doing small group sign-ups here soon. I'm pursuing different people to lead those and all that. And so really encourage you to put yourself in a position where you can be among believers who know you and where you're known and where this kind of thing can happen for sure. Okay, I basically just preached a whole sermon on step one. And then I say, okay, and now point two, and everybody groans like, oh, we're never getting out of here. These last two will be very brief, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> Next week? No, okay. So that's number one. I shouldn't have even said anything. The second thing that he does want to see flourish among these believers, and I promise I'll be fast, is this idea of being knit together in love. And this idea of being knit together speaks to us of the many biblical commands for us to live together in unity. And by adding the in love, we're reminded of that very important truth that unity is only as good as what we're unified around. Because lots of things unify human beings. Paul's desire for the Colossian church as he's living at a distance in Rome is not that they would just be really into each other but that they would be knit together in love. Think of all those powerful forces other than love that might knit a people together on planet Earth. Some are surely knit together by bonds of hate. Some people have a greater sense of who they're not than who they are. Some are knit together by fear. Guys, many people are knit firmly together by fear. Some are knit together like a well-ordered pirate crew by a desire to gain wealth. Some are knit together by patriotism or tribalism, others by necessity, still others by error. Guys, the human heart is inflamed with all sorts of misshapen longings and disordered desires, and everyone represents something that human beings can unify around. Ananias and Sapphira were knit together in common cause to support a lie. Guys, we can become knit together by all sorts of things. Paul's desire is not just that there would be unity among these people, but also that they would be knit together in love. They'd be unified around something worthy of a central shared focus 
to their life as a church. So Paul doesn't just express a desire for them to be together, but that they would be together for a cause. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Fellow Christians, if we are to be knit together in love here at State Road... We must have a clear picture in our minds of the greatest example of love that ever was, which is Jesus. This is why Paul, in chapter 1, spent so much time to that really fully formed Christology. Remember when we kind of used that $5 word? Gave us a great picture of who Jesus was, because if we are to be knit together in love, we must understand the way Jesus loved us. And as Jesus said, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another be knit together in living out the love that Jesus showed to us among one another. See, that was pretty short, and now we're here on the last point. We're almost done. And that's this. And I don't actually need to spend much time on this because we have talked about this every week so far in our study of Colossians, which is that we keep coming back to this truth that there is a link between growing in the knowledge and understanding of God and becoming more like God. And so after saying that he desires that they would be encouraged in their hearts and that they would be knit together in love, Paul says that, that he also struggles for them to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul keeps hammering away on this drum, doesn't he? Encouraging the Colossians to grow and grow and grow some more in their knowledge of God, and to do that by looking to Jesus, in whom the fullness of deity dwells dwells bodily. That's what it says in verse 9. We'll get to that next week. In verses 6 through 7, he lays out this four-step process, though, by which followers of Jesus grow toward greater maturity. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So step one is they have to be planted in the soil of salvation through a new birth. Step two, they learn to walk in Christ taking root in him and growing in what they know and living it out. And then step three, they grow stronger in their faith and are built up towards maturity. And then in step four, they bear fruit in overflowing gratitude. Now here's where the Colossians are. They're right between step one and two. Paul is writing to people who have received but have not yet matured. And so that's what he hopes to see growing in them. And the way that's going to grow is they must grow in their knowledge of who God is. And that's why we have the Bible. That's how God gave us his word. So what do you do with it? We've all just learned what Paul wrote to the Colossians all those years ago. But those are God's words for you too. And we're not a book club here at State Road, right? We always say that. We don't just gather together every week to talk about our favorite book. The Bible as a document is meant to be lived, not just talked about, and not even just understood. So anytime 
that we finish a study in God's word, one of the questions that should press in upon our minds is what are you going to do about it? Here we just learned God's desi- Paul's desire through the pen of God's desire through the pen of Paul that these people would be encouraged, knit together in love, and that they would grow in the knowledge of God and in, and of everything in Christ. So what do you do about it? I have one really big suggestion. One is this. Well, it's the only suggestion I'm going to make. Maybe there's other ways you could respond to what you've heard and seen in God's Word this week. But one of the things that you need is close contact with the body of Christ. Uh, This is good that we're all here together this morning. But you need to position yourself into a group of other believers who know you. And where you're in a position to be a similar help to others as well. God in his word has, um, I think, laid out a very clear biblical mandate for us to live in Christian relationships that aren't superficial. I think we all need to be part of a smaller group of believers that meet regularly to encourage one another, where we practice the art of living love, love, in love with one another in relationship, and where we're helping one another grow in the knowledge of who God is and what he's done for us, his word. And so I just want to challenge you, um, maybe this morning you're not even a believer yet, uh, and that's where I think you ought to begin. And I'd love to talk with you some more about how you can become a follower of Jesus. But if you've been a believer now for 60 seconds or 60 years, we need what Paul is talking, us, talking to us about here and pointing us toward, which is a smaller setting of believers where we'll be encouraged, where we can live out in community with one another the love that Jesus showed us in the gospel, and where we'll be helped to grow in the knowledge of the truth. And so in a matter of weeks here, we're going to be putting out sign-ups for small groups, and I would really be very encouraged and grateful if you would avail yourself of that when it happens. Okay. Let me pray, and as I pray, I'd invite the worship team to come up and lead us in one last song. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the, the struggle the burden that you gave to this man, Paul, who lived all these years ago and who wrote these words. But God, even though Paul was the human agent of that writing, God, we know that it was through the inspiration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we have these words. And you've protected them down through the years and they've been delivered us to us here this morning. And Father, yeah, we want to be encouraged But God, I pray also that you would make of each of us encouragers. Guys, that we would all together be encouraging one another to hold on and to continue striving. And God, yes, I pray that you would knit us together in love here at State Road. God, make that command that Jesus gave before going to the cross, that we would love one another as he loved us. God, that you would make that real and visible here among us as we live that out. 
And Father, I pray that you would grow us more and more in our knowledge of the truth, that we may then live in light of that truth as sincere from the heart imitators of Jesus. God, I pray that you'd make these things real here. And Father, draw us into these smaller communities of believers where we would just enjoy one another and be a greater help to one another in growing in Christ-likeness. God, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.